Well, good to be with you. Um, again, thank you for the invite, Maddie Ice, as I like to call him. I actually don't even know his last name, but I call him Maddie Ice because uh, he's so cool. <laughs> uh, no, glad to be with you. Uh, Matt sent me an email, said, hey, we're doing the Proverbs this summer, and I'd love for you to come out and speak. And I was able to be here last year when you guys were doing the Psalms. And uh, we're excited about that. If you've never uh, been to church before, I just want to welcome you. And we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs today. And if you've never opened up a Bible, and for all of us who have too, it's a good reminder, that uh, in, our, in the Bible there are many different books that we find. We find uh, historical books that are giving accounts. Uh, we find poetic books like the Psalms that we did last summer, uh, where it's a lot of uh, calling out to God in poetic language. We find New Testament accounts, which are letters written to actual people and actual churches in the ancient world. Uh, but in the Proverbs, we find uh, wisdom literature, which is really interesting. And, and there's a few other books, uh, like Ecclesiastes, which is considered a wisdom literature. And what wisdom literature does is it's a, a window into how to approach the, um, the, the, the questions of life where the moral rules don't apply. So we can ask questions all the time, like, uh, what job should I be doing? Uh, what person should I marry? Should I not marry this person? Should I uh, quit my job? Should I move here? What school should I go to? And we can often look to the Bible for answers like this. And what you'll find is the Bible is not going to give you the exact answer like you should go to Simon Fraser University. But what the Bible will do is it will give you wisdom into how to make these decisions. And so when there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer, the Bible will give you wisdom to, to learn this. And so as you grow in your relationship with Christ, as you grow as a Christian, uh, you grow in wisdom as well. So today we're looking at Proverbs and we're looking at these little bits of wisdom that are written in here. And we're gonna do it under three headings. And the whole idea that we're doing is we're looking at work. And so the question, before I list the headings I want in your mind, is not necessarily what job should I be doing as we look at work, but how should I be doing my job? Wherever that is, wherever that you find yourself at this time. And so we're going to be looking at it under three headings. The first one is the plan for work. Second one, the problem of work. And then the gospel and our work. So the plan for work, the problem of work, and the gospel and our work. So if you have a Bible, we'll begin the plan for our work. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. I'm reading from the ESV, and the, uh, the verse will be on the screen as well. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11, it reads, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. And then verse 14, From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. Where I want to spend a lot of our time, though, is in this verse 11. There's two sides to it. There is uh, whoever works his land with plenty of bread, and then part two, or part B, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. So we're going to work uh, with the first section here as we look at the plan for work. Uh, if you don't know much about the Proverbs and how they operate, they're actually a culmination of various kind of wise sayings that you'll have. And a lot of times the Proverbs are attributed to Solomon, but there's also to, to King Solomon from the Old Testament, but there's a lot of other authors that you'll see as well. Now, a lot of scholars aren't exactly sure whether or not 
every single uh, proverb was written by Solomon. We know Solomon was a really wise king, but most sources that I've come across will say it's actually most of the time a, these, these proverbs were passed on through oral tradition and then kind of all culminated and put together in a book that would have become the book of Proverbs. And so this ancient wisdom literature book would have been read by the wise sage or by the teacher to the students who would have been a group of young boys. And so if you read through the, the book, you'll hear a lot of times it'll say, my son, do this. My son, live in this way. And, and that's why, because it was a book uh, that was being read over as a teaching tool that we find. So you can just imagine a young Matty Ice sitting there with his big eyes as the, this wise sage reads over Matt saying, my son, heed this. And uh, so th- that is one of the things that you'll see over and over and over again. And we see Proverbs in other uh, places too. Like there's often, if you, if you Google Proverbs, you'll find uh, Chinese Proverbs or, or Proverbs, wise sayings from other areas of literature. And so uh, what we're finding here though is biblical wisdom and that we're gonna be engaging today as we think about work. So in this passage, whoever works his land, how you should understand this, the word work here is actually the idea of cultivating and so that's a farming image. That's a farming word that's being used here. I know it ends up kind of saying bread, right? Like it's a baker. But the idea is actually, the principle is the idea of your working, your cultivating is going to bring some sort of harvest, right? So bread in this, in this sense is, is like a harvest. So in your work, uh, whoever works his land will have plenty of harvest as you cultivate. And this idea of cultivating is a very prominent thing that you see in the Bible. This idea of work is a, a common thing that we see in the Bible. And, and it's actually celebrated as a good thing. But if we think about today where we are in our society today, uh, we actually are a little closer, I think, to what the ancient Greeks believed. And they viewed wor- uh, work as, as not a good thing. Ancient Greek philosophy viewed work as something to be avoided. And what do I mean? The, the ancient Greeks believed in a duality. Uh, and what they saw was there's the physical world and then there's the soul. The physical world is bad, but the soul is good. And the goal that you, that you have, every person has, is to focus on the non-physical Except that our non-physical soul is trapped in the physical body in our physical world. So the goal of life to the ancient Greek philosophers is to escape the physical and become transcendent and, and to go beyond. And you can kind of think, it sounds a little bit kind of like uh, some sort of uh, Eastern mysticism or a kind of a Gnosticism or even a little bit of Buddhism, the idea that you're trying to escape all that is in this life. And so by nature, Work is an earthly thing. Work is hard. Work is bad. So we're a lot similar to that. And let me read to you a modern philosopher. Have you ever heard of the band Loverboy? Uh, They wrote these very famous words. Everybody's working for the weekend. Do you know this one, right? What are they both saying? What are the Greek philosophers and the modern day philosophers saying? We're trying to escape work. We want to we live, we want to be relaxed, we want to not have this. We're trying to escape that which is hard. Now, the Bible has a different view on this. The Bible actually says work is a good thing. And I know you don't want to hear it, but you're actually created 
to work. You were created to work. So if we look at the creation account in the beginning of the Bible, what we find is we actually find a working God. In the book of Genesis, as God creates the world, you'll know that there are seven days of creation, right? He does all these things, and the seventh day he rests. He separates light and dark and, and the skies and the oceans, and he, and he creates all the living things. This is a vastly different example of the creation story than that what we see uh, in other creation accounts. So there is the, the biblical creation account that we'll see. But if you read other literature, other religions' creation accounts, a lot of times it's a lot of chaos that, are, that emerges. You'll have stuff like there will be two gods who, who fight each other. And in their fighting, uh, the, the cosmos is created. There's so much attack and, and debris that eventually the earth forms and it's an accident and it kind of just ends up being there. But the God of the Bible is actually a God who, who sees the chaos that's there and brings order to it. And so with that, he actually brings this same principle into our own lives. And in Genesis 2.15, he instructs Adam. He says to Adam, in the garden, after he's created everything and it is good, and he's satisfied with the work, he says to him, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, in the Bible, a lot of times we can have this view of God being just this person just giving us rules and telling us what to do. And if we follow these rules, then God will love us. That's not um, a correct understanding of what God does when he gives commands. Anytime God gives a command, it's for the flourishing of his people. So what's he telling Adam here? He's saying, anytime you work, as you cultivate, the word here is the Garden of Eden to work it. Again, the principle of cultivation to bring flourishment to the garden, Adam. That is what you were called to do and you will be satisfied with it. Uh, last summer, uh, I bought a boat which is super random, but my friend and I, we saw, he, he was mowing the grass. He's a landscaper at someone's house and the guy was selling a boat. We said, hey, we should clean this thing up and sell it. And so yesterday I had the pressure washer and a year later, right, we totally left the boat there for a long time. Finally, I'm pressure washing and it's a hard day. I'm dirty. I'm like, I got all the, the gunk spray back from the pressure washer, but Pressure washers like vacuuming is one of those really satisfying uh, jobs that as soon as like you're doing, you can just see the clean line coming and it's really satisfying. And at the end of doing that manual labor and, and being working in the sun, I was, it was actually, it felt really good to be doing that. And it's a weird thing to think like doing that work actually is satisfying. But the reason it is, is because we are created to work. And maybe if you've been on summer holidays, on vacation, or if you've ever taken uh, time in between jobs, you can feel like a restlessness. And you're like, what am I supposed to be doing? I'm not supposed to just be sitting here all day. And it just feels like that's all I'm doing. And it just doesn't feel right. And that's because you were created to do work. It's part of how we were built. And this is a good thing for us. So the Bible has a really positive view on what it means to work and the call for us to work. We are to take care and to cultivate all of that that is around us. And so in your job, in your school, uh, in your home, your mandate by God is to cultivate for the flourishing of all those around you. What I love about the, the Bible is, is it essentially implies that we are creating. And why does it imply that? Because God made us in his image, right? 
God is a creator and, and us bearing his image, we also bear the image of creating. And so in every avenue that we have, we are able to create and God creates the world, gives it to Adam in Genesis 2.15 and says, now cultivate it. And that means also creating. And so it's like we are given this canvas of limitless possibilities to create. And so that, creat- that creativeness inside of you, again, is given by God that we may create and follow in that cultivation and ultimately the flourishing of the world. So we are to cultivate and create and we are left with this untapped potential. And what I love about this is ancient, or not ancient theologians, but there are theologians a couple hundred years ago, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who... Uh, they viewed this as us being the fingers of God. So as we understand God as the one moving through time and causing things to, to happen in our world, and our societies, bringing cultural change, we're the fingers by which he does that. We are the, the, the ones who are fulfilling and acting out his providential purposes. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, Every Good Endeavor, writes it this way. He says, the 16th century Protestant reformers, particularly Martin Luther and John Calvin, argued that work, even so-called secular work, was as much a calling from God as the ministry of the monk or priest. The headwaters of Lutheran theology put special stress on the dignity of all work, observing that God cared for, fed, clothed, sheltered, and supported the human race through our human labor. When we work, we are as those in the Lutheran tradition often put it, the fingers of God, the agents of his providential love for others. This understanding elevates the purpose of work from making a living to loving our neighbor at the same time. And it releases us from the crushing burden of working primarily to prove ourselves. Work not only cares for creation, but also directs and structures it. The purpose of work is to create a culture that honors and enables people to thrive. As we see What Tim Keller is saying here is your work is bringing flourishing, the type of flourishing that God desires for our world. Now we can get caught up all the time because we we think that some work is actually more valuable than other work. And what this is saying is it's actually not. In God's economy, when God looks at the world, to him all work is valuable. So you might be thinking that you're working not a great job right now, Maybe you're like, I'm working at 7-Eleven and that doesn't feel like uh, the, the attainable cultural job that I should be aspiring for. And maybe you have goals and these are good things to be pursuing other jobs. But what it's saying is, even if you're in this place right now, bussing tables, doesn't make it any less valuable than someone who's a CEO at a company. So your job, you're not defined by your job, you're defined by God, and he has given you, again, think about his providential love for you, he's given you this job at this time. So what are we called to do? Cause its flourishing. Cultivate in that area and be an influencer there. And creating and and bringing about that flourishment. So to to pick on a a job that we tend to view in the culture as, as really low, although I think they actually do make good money, but we, we view someone who's a garbage man as someone who's a really low job. Why would you be a garbage man, right? Dealing with garbage when, when there's all these CEOs and the CEOs can look their eyes down at, at these people who are cleaning up and, and maybe someone who's a janitor. Well, here's something for you. 
And it's kind of the idea of like almost this ecosystem. I, at the service before, I called it the circle of life. And I was like, that's not it. That's Lion King. Uh, if there's no one to pick up garbage, to, to take care of waste, people die. We learned that in, in, the, uh, in the centuries before, right? If we are not clean, if we are not sanitary, people die. If they don't do their job well, those CEOs sitting up here will die. So you begin to see in this kind of ecosystem that every job has value. Every single job has a purpose. You, you know, there's, there's the CEO up there. He's trying to do the job as best as he can, yes. But that morning he had to eat breakfast. And that morning a farmer had to go and he had to gather the eggs and he had to milk the cow so that this CEO and everyone else doing their job that day could actually have nourishment in their bodies for a society. And so if you view your job here like that, that whatever your job is, you have an impact and you're bringing about the flourishment of society that God sees, even in our secular jobs that aren't just a, a pastor, right? Not just church work, but every job, if you view it like that, you're actually bringing about the flourishing of society. I like to think of it as like a team sport. If you think about, if you've ever played team sports, you know that you need every single position to be doing their job at the same time so that you can win. It's like that in, in the NFL world, right? And you play football, right? I played football for a number of years and I know that if you can have the, the, the best quarterback, right? Someone who gets all the attention, they're, they're the best player on, on the field, but they can be the best, but if they don't have a good offensive line blocking for them, they will be the worst quarterback in the league because they don't have time to throw. They don't, have, they don't have anyone to catch the ball. So you need all of these different positions playing well at the same time in a team effort to bring about the flourishment of the team. And so it goes with work. So the Bible is really optimistic about work. Again, in God's economy, all work is equal, all work is good, and all work serves God and his plans. Here's point number two, though. There's a problem that comes with work. Again, if we look at uh, verse 11, Proverbs 12, right? I said it's two parts. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. And that, that idea of worthless pursuits is, is this idea of vain pursuits. He who pursues vain self-interest pursuits lacks sense. So if you notice the first one of working the land, cultivating, that comes from, that's inward to the outward. But vain pursuits, that's just turning inward on what pursuits, what's going to benefit me, what will benefit the self. So we see a flip here. And we see that the Bible isn't encouraging this. And, and if you look down at verse 14, from the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good. And the work of a man's hands comes back to him. What's it saying? As, as you are working, right, you're going to see the fruit and you're going to be satisfied with the good work you do. But the moment and the temptation is when we turn inward, we actually flip this word upside down, right? Verse 14, it says, from the fruit of the the, his mouth, a man is, you could say, unsatisfied. He's not satisfied with the good. And what the inverse again would be, the work of a man's hands does not come back to him. So the, the wisdom literature here is saying, the moment you begin to, to turn this upside down, go against the way that God has intended things go wrong. I want to bring you back again to the creation account. 
Adam and Eve. God creates the garden. All things are good. All things are ready uh, for the flourishing of society. Adam and Eve are cultivating, creating, building this amazing garden. But in their rebellion against God, you know the story, they eat of the fruit. They rebel and everything gets flipped upside down. They now are unsatisfied. They are now feel shamed and, and sin begins to take a hold of them. And their relationship is broken of Adam and Eve. And the relationship with God is broken with Adam and Eve. And also their relationship with, with work is broken. God comes to Adam. He says, what did you do? You ate of the fruit. And he said, well, yeah, the woman made me do it. And then Eve says, well, the serpent made me do it. And they begin to play the blame game, go back and forth, back and forth. God ultimately pronounces uh, a curse and a judgment. He's saying, because of sin, because you rebelled against the created order, the way things ought to be, this is what's going to happen. And it says here in verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In your pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plans of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of, the, out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. What's this saying? It's saying, Adam, because you have, have rebelled against the way that was good, now this curse is upon the world and work's gonna be hard. There will be thorns and thistles in the field. It's not always gonna bring the harvest like you're used to. There will be pain. Your back's gonna hurt. Cursed is the ground because of you. So we see after the fall that the ground is cursed. We see that uh, because of humanity's sin, work becomes hard. And not only does work become hard, but our, uh, how we view work can also become skewed. And oftentimes we can fall into this place of being really prideful in our work or a place of being completely destroyed by our work. What do I mean? Uh, I use the example of um, an architect, right? Imagine that you're this big, large time architect, downtown Vancouver, the new upstart, right? You, you've become, you've gained these, be- you build these beautiful buildings and they're really strong and really sound. The moment pride sets in, right? This looks like I'm the best architect out there. And what happens is you, you might think you're a good person, But what you're really doing is you're looking your nose down at other people and saying, I'm better than you. Uh, Oh, janitor, I'm better than you. Oh, oh, person bussing tables, I'm better than you. I'm up here and it shows with with my accolades, with my money, and you begin to look down at them like you're some sort of superhero who's who's greater than everyone. So your work, you turn it into just pride, 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 pride. And you look at yourself as better than them. C.S. Lewis, who's a famous, famous author, puts it really well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, now what I want you to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure in how to, in, out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. We say we are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. In pride, as we view our work, we view our work as being better than other people. You're not acting as the, what the culture would say a good person. You're actually turning inward and saying, look how great I am. 
but that won't even satisfy you enough. And you'll never have enough. You'll never be uh, good enough at your job. And that's what leads you to actually feeling destroyed. So on the one hand, you have pride. On the other hand, you have being destroyed by your work. Because guess what? Architect, uh, superstar, there's a better architect who comes along and designs a stronger building, a more beautiful building. He's a better creator than you. And that, if that's where you place your identity in your success and your power, it will crush you. And you will not. Uh, you won't know where to go. Right? You'll feel utterly destroyed, utterly down. You're not going to be able to move. You're gonna, there's always going to be that better person. And so you'll be enormously discouraged. And you can bounce back and forth, back and forth between pride. You'll never be satisfied. Verse 28, or Proverbs 28, verse 19 says, those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies, those who chase vain things, will have their fill of poverty. Both are vanity. Right? If you're chasing it for the wrong reasons, it's vain. It'll destroy you. Ecclesiastes is another book in the wisdom literature. And it puts it like this in verse 11 of chapter 2. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What is the writer here saying? What is the writer of Proverbs saying? You can, you can chase after all these things, these accolades in your work. But if you do that, it's just, you're just chasing after the wind. It, you'll never be satisfied in your work. You'll never be humble in your work. You'll be prideful or you'll be really destroyed by your work. It'll be a vicious cycle. And in the end, I love, I love this end of the sun. It's all the idea that that every day the sun goes down and comes back up and one day you will die and there'll be another person who's better than you in your job and a hundred years from now, they're not gonna remember you. The, the writer's saying, you can chase after having your name written in stone, but 200 years from now, people won't even know what your name is. And then millions of years from now, when the world burns up and the sun explodes, like scientists say it will, there'll be no world. There'll be no name written in stone. It's all vanity. You're chasing after the wind. Everything burns up in the end and no one's going to remember you if you live by this standard. If you, God, if you reject God's design, it will destroy you. Here's the third point though. The gospel and our work. How, how do we implement and understand the gospel as we look at our work? The solution is to remember your intended design. The, the design that we saw in the beginning with uh, Adam and Eve, right? Cultivate. Bring flourishing, create. You need to remember that in every avenue that you're in. Be a faithful witness to where God has placed you. Maybe you don't want to be in this place right now. But what we're being called to do is be a faithful witness in your workplace, in your school, in your home, in your community to where God has you right now. If you're familiar with the story of Esther in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Esther uh, is described as a beautiful woman who catches the eye of the king. Now, the king uh, didn't like his old wife very much. He had her killed because she said some things that he didn't like. She spoke out against him. And so he, he killed her and said, I'll take a new wife. Finds Esther, likes Esther, brings her into the palace. And so overnight, Esther is brought from being in this really low place to now in the palace. 
And she's, she's living in this, uh, you know, with the king. And she has, she's drinking the best wine. She's having the biggest parties. And she, she's living large, right? Who'd want to give up the palace? She's living the, the dream. She's in the palace, this place of royalty. But what, what, what we learn about Esther is that she's actually uh, a Jew. And there, there comes this conspiracy to actually um, destroy the Jews, and she has this opportunity as Mordecai comes to her and he says, you need to go to the king and advocate for us. And Esther has to make a decision. I could go to the king, but if I speak out against him, I could lose my place in the palace. I could lose this high place that I find myself in. And she has a real dilemma on her hands, right? Do I give up where I am now? This, this high place that I find myself in? Ultimately, Esther does. And she goes and she brings the deliverance of the Jews. But it was in jeopardy there. She could have actually lost it all. She could have lost the palace. Tim Keller, again, is, and he mentions in the book, Every Good Endeavor, and I highly recommend it. It was really helpful in preparation for the sermon. He says that he heard a sermon on Esther when he was young, given by a Hispanic preacher who had a congregation of a lot of elderly people and a lot of young, successful people. Think about the tech industry and, and lots of upstart jobs where these people are leaving college right away making six-figure salaries, doing really, really well. And he said in his congregation, there began to have this, this part of these young upstarts who began to look down on the elderly people because they were making more money. They were attending the fancy parties. They were being brought up to these, these great workplaces and this older generation who, who, who weren't in this place necessarily there, there became a disparity there. And he said, you know, a lot of the problems that, that you guys have, right, to, this, to these young upstarts, these successful people, he says, you want to be Christians, you want to live for the Lord, but you're not willing to give up the palace. You're not willing to actually share your faith in your workplace. You're not willing to cultivate to the glory of God, even if it might cost you something. That's a really good reminder for us, right? We, we, can, we can easily find ourselves in the palace. Maybe you get a promotion. Maybe a few things go well. But you might be in a place right now, too, where there might be things going on at work that you know about that not necessarily are ethical and that you're just letting go under the rug because you don't want to lose your place at, at getting that new promotion. You don't want to lose favor with your boss. You don't want to lose favor with your colleagues. So you don't bring up your faith in Christ. You don't bring up uh, Christianity in your community when you're, when you're meeting uh, with other people. You, you don't bring that up because you don't want to lose your, your place in the palace. And we are told here that, that to be a faithful witness is actually to, to put the palace on the line here. It's not an easy thing to do. We are called to serve. We're called to serve God at work. So how, how do we do this? How do we do this well? Knowing that, yeah, there's a risk of, of losing the palace. How do we do this well? Here's just a few practical ways, knowing the risk that if we have courage, we can do. One of the ones here is we can serve God as a way at our work as a way to further social justice in the world. To be personally honest and evangelize our colleagues. When, you, when your colleagues come up to you and, and they have a question, you can be really honest and then tell them about your faith. When they come to you with an issue, you can say, hey, my faith really helped me 
in this time. I'd love to share it with you and, and tell you about this. You can serve God at work by just doing skillful, excellent work. Everything you touch is done well. People take notice of that. You can create beauty. You can work from a Christian motivation to glorify God and seeking to engage and influence the culture to that end. You can be really unashamed about it and say, this is what I'm doing. I'm seeking to cultivate and engage. And you can be really open about that. And people might really respect that. Another way is to work with a grateful, joyful, gospel-changed heart through all the ups and downs. And as the company goes like this, people will notice, hey, you're really solid. What is it that you believe that you act like that? It's an opportunity for the gospel. Work to do whatever gives you the greatest joy and passion. Or make as much money as you can so that you can be as generous as you can. These are ways that you can serve the Lord in your workplace, in your community, in your job, in in, in your school. These are all great ways to do it. And so as we think about being a faithful presence, being a faithful witness, cultivating, creating, bringing the flourishing around, we can do these things and, and bring that. This is God's work that we're doing as Christians. It doesn't have to be just a, a Christian job. We are Christians influencing and bringing creation to the culture. We can transform the world through this. And so the problem though is we can get really inspired by this and we can say, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring all this change. But often that motivation will wear off, right? And I know even for myself, I leave here. I can be all inspired, right? But a week, two weeks, three weeks later, we're back in the same routines. Why? Why are we like this? It's because we forget. We forget what we were called to do. And then, but then we'll try and do it again. We'll remember, remember, and I'm going to work harder, 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 harder. And then you fail again. And you don't stand up for your colleagues. You don't stand up for what's true and right. You'll never be able to live like this. But there's one who did. And his name's Jesus. And so we look to Jesus and we remember what he did. And um, I'm just reminded, right? Jesus gave up the palace the kingdom of heaven, to come down to earth with us. He, he left the, the throne uh, sitting with, with God. He's sitting in the highest place. He leaves it. The second member of the Trinity comes down and lives in the humble world with us. Works, leaves being the, 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 in the kingdom and he comes and he's a, he's a carpenter. Jesus works and he does that for you. He comes and works and shows us the way how we ought to work, how we ought to be living our lives. And he does this for us, to help us, to encourage us, to show us the way. Jesus leaves the palace. He feels pain. He feels frustration. He's tired. You'll read that Jesus takes naps. He's exhausted. He feels the physical strain that we feel as well. But he did that for you so that he could show you the way. Then Jesus leaves the palace ultimately to die on a cross, to reconcile you with the Father. The the very thing that we broke in the garden, Jesus comes to repair. And he does that for you and he's murdered for it. So that we could be with him and so that that's taken care of, right? Sin and death are defeated. And because of that, we now can live in obedience to him and bring creation and bring flourishing to our world, to our job, to our culture. Jesus does 
that for us. He knew that our works wouldn't get us to God, so he did the work for us. And he restores the relationship. And when you realize that, when you realize that God is a working God, that Jesus works as well, it changes the way that you, can, that you think about work. When that really like gets inside of you, and it'll, it'll melt you. When you let that melt your heart and understand that, that work is good for us and that Jesus did the ultimate work for us, it changes the way you think about work. We can bring about the flourishing that God has asked us to. There's a song, and I want to close with this. It says, O loving laborer with sweat upon your face, O build a table that I may too join you in the Father's place. In the Father's place. Let me pray for us. Father, we... Uh, we acknowledge that we are a people who again and again and again need you. We, we, we need your strength in our workplace, in our schools. And Lord, we, we confess that often we are not uh, the type of advocates that you uh, would desire. And so we, we give that to you, Lord. Would you transform us and encourage us again? Would we remember Christ and what he did and live in light of that? So now, Lord, as we respond in worship, where our hearts reflect that gratitude and would our minds be engaged as we now worship in response. We love you and we praise you. And everybody said, amen. amen.